Well, we have entered into the praise of that truth. Now I want to read to you the promise of that truth. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a precious and amazing truth to us. Our Father and our God, as we bow our heads before you now and and uh, transition from praise to promises to your word of God, to your word. Oh, Father, we pray this morning that our hearts would truly be uh, touched and affected by the teachings of Christ. Lord, I pray that um, we will take the Great Commission seriously where he said, and teach them to obey whatsoever things I've commanded you. My teachings are to be your life application. And so I pray, Father, this morning that we will um, purpose in our hearts to trade up our lives to the transforming work that you want to do in us. Lord, I pray that we would desire that in every possible way you will invade our hearts and every action and motive of our lives that we might truly live out the truth from the inside of what you are doing in our lives. And so, our Father, I pray that we would take very seriously the word of God this morning, that uh, we will realize the, the um, amazing privilege it is for us to, to be here in this place and to have this, um, this freedom to gather, to assemble, to praise you, to encourage one another, and to um, have the proclamation of God's word uninterrupted given to us. Uh, in, this, in this day, uh, Lord, is a truly amazing thing. And we do not ever want to take this for granted, but we want to thank you for your grace to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, one thing we get very good at, and that is making the outside of us look presentable to people. In fact, uh, we're all glad this morning that we're reasonably proficient at that. It took some people longer to do that this morning than others, but we're glad that, uh, that we are engaged in that. There is a grave danger, though, in getting really good at that, because particularly when it comes to our spiritual lives, we can dust ourselves off and clean ourselves up and come to church and present ourselves on the outside in a pretty spectacular way. And the danger of that is it may not be the truth about what's going on in the inside of our lives. It is to that that Jesus cries out, be careful. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 6? We have been uh, on a journey through this gospel. And we launched into the Sermon on the Mount last week, the Beatitudes. uh, We we discovered that the blessed are described at the very first part of chapter 5 and then Jesus talks about uh, those who are his being salt and light of the earth and um, that he came to fulfill the law and that righteousness, 
uh, our righteousness, the true, those who are truly followers of Christ must have righteousness that surpasses the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and religious leaders. And then he identifies five different areas of life that had become sloppy uh, in, in the uh, community of God, the area of murder and adultery, divorce, uh, oaths, revenge, and, and loving your enemies. And then at the very end of chapter 5, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And uh, that uh, became a, becomes a very, very challenging uh, statement made by Christ. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, or be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. And so Christ uh, presents this to us, and uh, we know from experience that it's impossible for us to be perfect, but yet Jesus tells us to be perfect. And so we've come to realize that unless we actually have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we can't possibly uh, come anywhere near fulfilling the responsibilities of this verse. But if we are in Christ, we are viewed by the Father in heaven as perfect in Christ. And we are increasingly being set apart for his work. And then he launches in to this discussion on three spiritual disciplines that are very common practices um, in the matter, he says, of acts of righteousness or spirituality gone public. And if your Bibles are open, I want to start at verse 1 of chapter 6, uh, the book of Matthew. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. In other words, don't blow your own horn, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you go, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Well, this is the word of the Lord. 
in the matter of your spiritual spirituality gone public. The word here um, that is translated acts of righteousness is really the plural of righteousness. It's righteousnesses. When you are doing your righteousnesses, which is not really a word we use, it's not really a word at all, and that's why it's been translated acts of righteousness. As best we can understand, uh, Jesus is talking about when you take uh, normal religious practice and go public with it, um, when you do that, watch out that you don't get blinded by the stage lighting of public acclaim. Uh, make sure that you don't play to the crowd uh, your spirituality. In your spiritual life, really, there are questions that are being surfaced here. This is really not a really uh, in, difficult text at all. In fact, in the reading of it, I, I'm pretty certain that you understand exactly what has been read to you this morning and what it's saying. But, but in your spiritual life, there are questions that are asked out of this text. Do you mean business with God or are you looking for the praise of people? In your, is your righteousness real or is it an act? And, and we don't want to quickly dismiss those questions and, and say, oh, oh no, it's, it's all good. We want to look at this and really um, understand what Christ is really cautioning us with respect to. Um, because we have been entrusted with publicly managing the internal treasures of the spirit-driven life. That's a, a, a really, really important um, responsibility that only God can help us with, of course. But what really is being stated here is that when you go public with your religion, beware of two temptations. The one is this, to be seen to be holy by others. And the other is to trade future rewards for the temporary accolades of people now. These are two grave dangers. And um, again, I don't want you to dismiss this quickly because um, you can't have both the rewards of God and the acclaim of people. And I think you, you already know what you should choose. But uh, he picks out three common religious activities here that are not only common to Christianity, but were certainly common to Judaism, common to the practice of the people of God in the Old Testament, and common to the in the practice of many other religions as well. Giving to the needy, prayer, fasting. But he picks them out and says, in my kingdom... These activities are either real or they're pretend. And um, it really depends on where the, what the motive is internally. Is it grace-driven or is it works of piety to look good and gain the favor of God or worse, to get praise from people? Because in his kingdom, acts of righteousness must be real or you forfeit reward. That's what he's teaching here. Now, there's a structure here that's pretty obvious to us as well as we read together that helps us to really understand what is being emphasized here. Um, three times there's the phrase that comes up, to be seen by man or people. And then it, uh, there's another uh, phrase that pops up that, that uh, you get your reward in full or, and forfeit your reward from the Father. And then another phrase is repeated three times as well. Your father sees all things. He knows what's going on in the inside. He, knows, he sees what's going on in the outside. You can't fool him. He knows exactly what's going on. And so you have this, 
this balancing act of, of, of seeking to be seen by people versus rewards versus the fact that God knows exactly what's going on. And so Jesus wants to highlight this and, and make the point that um, the Heavenly Father will not permit you to, in fact, use His grace to get glory for yourself. It's not going to work that way. And, and He'll see that you're uh, rightly rewarded for uh, authentic loyalty toward Him. Now, there's also another word that pops up three times, and that's the word when. Uh, Jesus... Uh, just simply expects that these disciplines will be a part of the repertoire of our spiritual lives. He's not saying if you do, he's saying, he's expecting that when you give to the needy and when you pray and when you fast. And so you can see that this is basically the structure of this uh, teaching here. Now we want to look at, at the, the three different disciplines. There are three areas of discipleship that are in danger here. And Jesus identifies them. And the, the first begins at verse 2 here. So when you give to the needy. Now I've seen dogs wearing little coats. And, and I, I've, I, I've known of them to, to run up uh, extravagant veterinary bills. I also know that, uh, that for the most part many of them are fed uh, scientifically produced and very expensive food. And I've also seen... Grown men who would never lift a finger to change a diaper of their child, walking the street and picking up every deposit their dog leaves on a boulevard. And I wonder to myself, in this matter of giving to the needy, how much pet love costs in our culture. I won't embarrass any of us here this morning to give you the figures that is are spent, the, the amount of money that's spent in North America on animals, but I have a feeling, a strong hunch, that it's significantly more than is spent on the needy. I, I think that Jesus would have a, a problem with that as he talks about when you give to the needy. I've also noticed that uh, it seems in our culture that we tip better than we tithe. Now, waitresses and waiters and hairdressers and all that are very nice people, but we're talking about God and the whole matter of our willingness to give. And so Jesus says here, so when you give to the needy, those who are in immediate economic despair, uh, those who genuinely need something that you are able to help them with. Uh, Jesus talks very practically about this uh, later on in the Gospels when he said, you know, if, if someone doesn't have a coat and you have two, give them one of your coats. He, he also says if someone needs you to go with them a mile, what does he say? Go two miles. That's where we get the, the term go the extra mile with someone. And so Jesus talks a lot about the whole matter of neediness. It's not just money, I might add. It's, it's a variety of things that people need. I think the working poor, for instance, in our culture are, are among the, the most needy, the most legitimately needy. Uh, they don't have a cultural and social safety net to fall back on. Uh, and we ought to pay attention to that, I think. But one thing I know for certain in this culture, in the culture of North America, particularly in Canada, particularly in the GTA, that our wealth 
And yes, we are wealthy. Our wealth presents us with enormous responsibility and opportunity. And, and the point that I think is important to make as we launch into this is that the needy are at the center of God's takeover strategy for the universe. What am I talking about? Um, if we understand uh, the history of the growth of the church, we will realize that, that in the early part of Christianity, the cities, the ancient cities, were horrible, horrible places. They were death traps, basically. They were... Um, uh, harbors for thieves and criminals and murderers. They were cesspools of disease and, and sickness and uh, basically a life, the, the lifespan of people living in Rome, for instance, or Athens or cities like that was, was barely over the age of 30 because of the, the nature of the, the, the danger and risk of the cities. And that's where the, 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 the early church, the believers, were congregating in the cities, and they were moving there, and, and, and uh, they were ministering to people who were dying and sick and needy, and people noted that, historically noted that. And, and God was reaching into hearts of the needy who were desperately uh, 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 needing great help and noticed that, that believers, that Christians were helping them and they were turning in great numbers to Christ. In fact, um, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, makes the very same point when he says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not, that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Christianity was growing. Early Christianity expanded through charity. And it's never changed. And when Christ talks here about so when you give to the needy, it's not just about having a generous heart. It's about his, uh, his method of expanding the kingdom of Christ. And so um, early Christians worked among those who were needy. It's always been our habit. And Jesus makes several points here about this whole matter of, of, of uh, giving. In this, he says, in terms of authenticity, be sure you are loving and not acting. He uses the word hypocrites here. Be sure that you are not hypocrites. Now, hypocrites, of course, you've heard it described before is, is the, the language of actors. The actors were called hypocrites because they put on a face. They, put on a, they were masquerading. And uh, Jesus is talking here about authenticity. Make sure that your giving is not inauthentic. And that it comes from a genuine heart of love and concern that it's real, that it's generated from the heart of God. Christ is one who cares about the needy. And so that's what is being portrayed here is, is the expectation. And he says, be certain. There are actually three H's in this text of hypocrites, honored, and hiding. And um, he talks here about being certain that your motive is God's glory and not your own. When he says, uh, do not... Uh, be as the hypocrites uh, in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. The word that's used here, interestingly, for honored is, is the word doxa or uh, doxological or the word that normally is translated glory. In other words, it's really obvious what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, don't be using the graced position you have to get glory for yourself. 
Now, I want to pause here for a moment and talk about the, the whole matter of, of us giving to the needy and recognizing uh, the needs of others. The reason that sometimes we are unwilling to give is that we believe that we happen to deserve the situation that we're in and we look around and we see people who are less fortunate than us and we come to the conclusion that since I deserve what I have, they probably deserve what they don't have or what they have. And, and that's a really dangerous and slippery slope to, to allow ourselves to, to get to. Uh, now, uh, we, we need to be quick to say that, that uh, the Word of God never um, encourages idleness or laziness, but regularly we look at people who are in need and we say, well, they're just lazy, they're just idle, they're, they're not trying hard. And, and that may be so, but, but it's not so from, uh, with respect to the majority of people who are in need. And, and I think we're, if we are honest with ourselves, we realize that, that the reason that we are where we are is because of the amazing grace of God. I mean, I had nothing to do with the family that I was born into. I had nothing to do with the, the country that I was born into. I had nothing to do with the city that I was born into. I had nothing to do with most of the opportunities that came my way. And if, if we're honest, uh, or, or the positions that we have, uh, we'll, we'll recognize that, that because of the amazing grace of God, we are where we are and we have what we have. Now, I'm not discounting effort and and, 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 and industriousness. I'm not discounting that. Christ doesn't discount that. But, but let's recognize that, that, that by the grace of God, for the most part, most of us are where we are. And, and, and those that are in need, for the most part, is not because of their laziness or idleness or, or lack of industriousness, but rather because of circumstances that have come their way. That's why... That's why James writes in James chapter 1, verse 27, that, that pure religion is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. They had nothing to do with the fact that they're orphans or widows. And I think if we're honest about our world, we realize that bounty doesn't fall equally. Which puts a huge responsibility upon us where God has amazingly graced us. That's why I kind of bristle when I see a charitable organization that publishes the names of people in their magazines as champion givers, you know, the President's Club or the Silver Club or the Bronze Club. Oh, hey, I, I want to get my name on there. I don't want to get my name there. That's a Specifically what Jesus is talking about here. Don't put your name up in lights. Don't broadcast what you are doing. Don't look for the honor of man. Rather, choose anonymity. Choose to be anonymous in your giving. By the way, he's not saying that so that you can hide how little you give. That's regularly why people are all bent out of shape about an an anonymity. It's not because they've given so much. It's because they don't want anybody to know how little they actually give. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying choose anonymity so that you won't be noticed at all. It's about why you give, not that you give that reveals the truth about you. And he says here quickly, the Father sees what is done in secret. Not what is done for personal honor. And rewards it. If you give, 
and broadcast it and publish it and blow your own horn, then you have your reward in full. Somebody noticed. Somebody thinks you're pretty special. And the Father bypasses the reward. You have your reward in full. Well, he continues on to when you pray. Now, prayer is that decision that you make to have a time of undistracted intimacy with God. That's fundamentally what prayer is. Again, it's, it's not um, when you pray, it matters why you pray. And um, he, he points out here, uh, don't pray so that you can be standing in the synagogue or on the street corner and be noticed. It's helpful for us to have a little bit of cultural background here to understand what Jesus was particularly identifying. It was common practice for the Jews to pray, have a disciplined prayer um, uh, schedule, to pray early in the morning and at the ninth hour of the day. Now, the ninth hour of the day just happens to be 3 p.m. Now, you can imagine that if you live a life of disciplined prayer schedules and you know that everybody knows that prayer time is around 3 o'clock, that you can conspicuously set yourself up in a very important spot at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You know, rush down to the corner of Young and Bay. Do they cross? <laughs> or some street that's busy with people. And oh, oh my goodness, 3 o'clock has rolled around. I better pray. And so long, loud, and proud you pray. And people are looking at you, oh, isn't he so amazing? And listen to the amazing theological words that he is using. He knows God and the Bible so well. And oh, everybody's just oogling over how religious you are. That's what Jesus is talking about here. By the way, God's not impressed by your theological knowledge. There's nothing you can teach God. He's not really excited because you can use the word propitiation in your prayer. It's not like God's like, wow, that's an interesting word. I need to look that one up in the dictionary. Thank you very much for praying that. It's not like God is looking for that kind of stuff. God is looking for sincerity of our hearts. This is to be undistracted, intimate time with God from the heart. Now, Jesus, by the way, isn't negating the importance or relevance of public prayer altogether because Jesus himself prayed in public. He's talking about putting on a show. He's talking about praying to be seen to be holy, special, pious. That's what he's talking about here. When you pray, do not sell out something all about God to become something all about you. That's what Jesus is teaching here. God will not accept you using time graciously given by him to you for undistracted intimacy for personal ambition. Rather, go into your room. Go in and close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Interesting. The matter of prayer is a huge matter of faith. We can't see God. 
So when you go out in public and try to show off like you're so special and you know everything, so religious and all of that, just so people will notice, there's no faith to that. Faith is taking some of your time, going into the privacy of your room where nobody knows, and actually believing that you're talking to the Heavenly Father who you can't see. That catches God's attention. And so he makes the point here that um, if you go to show off, you will get your reward in full by showing off from the people who note you. But the second thing he says here, don't, don't babble like pagans. Don't, don't turn your prayer time into a, a, a repeating mindlessly words. Do not think that you can manipulate God by mindlessly repeating the same mantra. That's already been tried by the pagans, Jesus said. It doesn't work. You remember in 1 Kings 18, 26, back in those days when, when the uh, prophets of Baal were, were challenged by the prophet Elijah to, to, to uh, prove his existence and all that kind of stuff, and you had 450 prophets of Baal crying out to their God, crying out to Baal from morning till noon, Calling out, oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. Now, now picture in your mind being an audience of that and being there and, and hearing from like 7 o'clock in the morning till noon uh, these prophets of Baal, oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. I think we can all understand why Elijah got sarcastic and said, maybe he can't hear. Maybe you should shout louder. Or the time that the Apostle Paul annoyed the Ephesians and for two hours they cried out to their god Artemis goddess Artemis lifting up oh great are you Artemis of the Ephesians oh great are you Artemis of the Ephesians oh great are you Artemis of the feet of the Ephesians I've done it for five seconds and you want me to leave the stage they did it for two hours neither Baal nor Artemis heard. And so Jesus said, um, your father in heaven doesn't need a bunch of words repeated, doesn't need you to send him positive thoughts. He knows what you need and prayer that catches his ear is prayer that asks God for what he already knows you need. Isn't that what he says? Do not be like them, verse 8. For your Father knows what you need before you ask. Therefore, this then is how you should pray. Now, in the next minute and a half, I'm going to try to give an outline of how we ought to pray, which is about seven to ten sermons in itself. But there are three sections that are identified here as a, as a pattern for prayer. This is how you should pray. Know that in, in the, the theme of this, Jesus wants us to really understand that, that God hears prayers that ask him for what he already knows we need. So in provision and in pardon and in protection, it's about calling on God for a change in you and your situation according to his will. That's the kind of prayer that God hears. So, for instance, in provision, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Um, your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us today our daily bread. 
in provision, our prayer should go something like this. Please, God, give me what I need to do your will. Whatever that is. Whatever material thing that we need to do his will. In, in, the, in the matter of pardon, he talks about your forgive us of our debts. Uh, please, God, we should be praying this way. Please, Lord, uh, give me more than I deserve to do your will. And, and help me to do the same for others for your will's sake. In the matter of protection from temptation, the evil one, Lord, protect me from anything that would get in the way of uh, or prevent me from doing your will. That, that's the, the essence of this prayer here. He hears when you ask for stuff he knows you need. It's really foolish of us to try and force what we want when an awesome God of the universe knows what we need. I mean, think about that for a little while. I mean, in fact, think about that for a long time. Think about that for a long time after this sermon, how foolish it is to ask God for what we want when he knows what we really need. It makes way more sense to pray to God to ask him for what, we already, what he already wants to give us according to his will. I don't want to leave here, though, without noticing, although we need to leave quickly, I don't want to leave here without noticing verse 14 and 15. Real believers pay their own forgiveness forward or they forfeit their forgiveness. Please, I, 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 it's chronic, it's epidemic in the Christian community. I can't forgive, I, I, I can't bring myself to forgive these people. Listen, I'm telling you, we're not given that option. So important are relationships to God that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross of Calvary that your relationship might be restored to the Father but that you might have forgiveness from God. And then he says, look at I took it seriously. I took it so seriously that I sent my own son to die on a cross so the relationship would be restored. I'm telling you that I want you to take it seriously as well in your life. I want you to forgive in the way that I've forgiven. And he doesn't just say, I really, really hope you do that. He says, if you don't, I won't forgive you. I mean, that's a hard, hard teaching. But it's right from the lips of Christ. The final of the triad here is verse 16, when you fast. Now, this is um, a practice or a discipline that if I'm... If you are a normal audience or a consistently um, normal audience, then fasting is perhaps of the three something that is least evident in our lives. And, and by the way, it's not a command. You won't find it as a command in the scriptures anywhere, but it is one of the key disciplines and, and I've become, by the way, I'll just say this at the front end, very convicted as I was studying this to present it um, of where, what place it has or does not have in my own life. It is a di discipline, a significant discipline that shapes spiritual health like no other. Uh, there's no set pattern that is given to us in the scriptures, although fasting is, is, is participated. And in fact, it was commanded in the Old Testament that they had to fast that one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. But the atonement has come. Christ has come. Our Savior is here. There's been no carryover of a command to, to fast. But Jesus assumes we will. So that's significant. 
And um, it seems to me, as we try to summarize the idea of fasting, that, that the only way Christ can truly ma maintain a priority affection in my life is if I make sure that I discipline out of my life other addictions. And fasting is the way that takes place. Now, you know that, that when Christ described a disciple, he said, a disciple is someone who, tell me, den starts with a D, denies themselves, takes up their cross, and follows after me. I want to come right back to the front of that, denies themselves. Fasting is the spiritual discipline of denying yourself. It's the discipline of teaching you how to say no. In fact, um, in, our, in our culture of entitlement and, and, and uh, the rarity with which uh, parents say no to their children, we are increasingly in a culture that doesn't even have the word no in its vocabulary. And fasting is that discipline of teaching myself to say no. To, to keep ourselves and to keep the Lord as the center of our affections. Fasting is denying ourselves. So Jesus says it makes no sense then to, to, uh, to go and, and out public and show off in the fasting department when, when fasting is not to extol yourself, but to in fact deny yourself. How foolish it is because all you've done is become incredibly hungry and God hasn't even noticed. And so it's, it's foolish. And, and, and so fasting here is, to, is, is an act of discipline that uh, uh, the purpose is the inner transformation of our affections, not the public exaltation of self. And so critically, we need to understand that fasting disciplines us to say no to our addictions. Now, I want to say to you that most of us think fasting is only about food. And, and for the most part, the, the um, examples that we have in the scripture were food. But the people of the ancient culture didn't have as many distractions, even close to the distractions that we have. They ate, they slept, they worked, and they barely survived. So for them, the only thing that they really could uh, fast was food and sleep. And you know that Jesus practiced both. We have all kinds of distractions that are getting in the way of Christ in our lives. We have the distractions of our laptops. I mean, how much time do you spend outside of work just surfing around on your laptop or, or watching television or any number of things? And are they maybe moving into the realm of becoming idols in our lives? And do we maybe need to say no and fast from our computer or fast from our telephone or fast from our, uh, our television or, or a number of other things? Perhaps food is it. Fasting disciplines you to say no to your addictions, and the primary addiction is ourself. Fasting is to deny yourself. Our addictions, don't ever forget, determine our affections. And so one of the major realities of fasting is to deprive myself of things that may be moving into an idle status of my life and in the way of God. And in the discovery of that process, I realize how sinful I am. Now, there are other reasons for fasting, but we, this was not, the purpose was not to exhaust the idea, theology of fasting. But I can tell you that we're not generally very good at saying no to anything. Our unhealthy bodies, our unhealthy souls, 
and our unhealthy relationships testify to that. And Jesus recommends fasting as a discipline with respect to all of those areas in your life. So let me conclude by saying in the matter of going public with our righteousness, we are to operate from gratitude and for God's glory and not to abuse disciplines to erect monuments to our own significance. There's the ever-present danger of brushing aside God's glory for self-glory, even in these disciplines. And then they have benefited us zero. If there are rewards, and there are according to Christ, then Jesus wants to reserve the right to award them to us. So I want to urge you not to settle for cheap human knockoffs. There's no comparison between the rewards that God wants you to have and the rewards that you get from blowing your own horn and having someone slap you on the back and say, oh, what a wonderful Christian you are. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. Practice these disciplines, but practice them authentically from the heart, and your reward will come from heaven, from the heavenly Father who sees all things and the motive of all things. Our Father and our God, thank you for teaching us clearly loyalty to Christ. I pray that we will uh, engage in the upgrade that you want to do in our lives, transforming us from the inside out, Lord, that our acts of spiritual discipline will truly be honoring and glorifying to God and transforming in our own lives. There's a, we know there's a circular reality, Lord, where you energize us and transform us to enact our righteousness and in so doing, acting on our righteousness that you have given to us, we in fact are grown more and more like Christ. So, our Father, I pray that we will participate in all that you want to have for us and do in our lives. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. Let me send you here with a practical assignment with respect to Christ's teachings in these, each of these areas. It seems to me that the only way we can really test the legitimacy of our heart is to do just that, to test it. So I would encourage you to soon find, uh, as God directs, somebody in need and then give to them anonymously. See how difficult it is to do that. I recommend that you think about your prayer life and ask the question, am I more engaged in public prayer than I am in private prayer? Which might indicate that maybe I really pray just to be seen to be holy as opposed to really having a relationship that's intimate with God. I suggest we take that seriously. And then I recommend that you find something in your life, some pattern of behavior and choose to fast whether it be surf time on the internet whether it be surf time on tv maybe it's food i don't know what but take something in your life that might be crowding out your affections for christ your time with christ and fast put christ back in the priority position in that area of your life I think what Christ is teaching us here is pretty obvious. He said, you do these things, your Father who sees will reward. Our Father, we love you because you first loved us. 
And because, Lord, you have called those who are yours among the blessed, we desire that our lives may reflect the truth. So from the inside out, Lord, change us. And may we recognize and realize the amazing benefits of truly being loyal to Christ, being loyal to the King. Help us, Lord, strengthen us in these areas of discipline that our spiritual health may soar to your glory, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.